customs are here. I mean, the computer science people, I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a, a lawyer. Um, uh, my PhD is in math. I say that because I'm used to proving theorems. This is a talk where there are no theorems, don't worry. Uh, that's actually something that frustrates me. Uh, the talk is, well, let me explain why. The talk is, as you say, in search of formal definitions. I'm going to try to define things carefully. And what I'm used to doing as a mathematician is then proving a theorem that says, I got it right. And the hard part here is, it's, I don't know what the statement of such a theorem would be. And that's something that, that I want to talk about. Um, so I'll try to make this, there is actually a paper underlying this that gets somewhat technical in the sense of it really does give really formal definitions. You won't get that for the most part here, but you know, feel free to ask. So I don't know what the customs are here. In, in computer science, the custom is ask questions at any time. Don't be polite. Don't wait to the end. Uh, if I think a question will take a long time to answer, I'll tell you to wait till the end. But but you know, feel free to jump in. This is very much meant to be a, an audience participation talk. So. Um, you know, what exactly is moral responsibility and intention? So people have been talking about these things for thousands of years. It's rather daunting. I went to the library to, you know, sort of to try to, you know, if I want to do research in this stuff, I should learn about it. And I see literally shelves full of books to talk of, you know, with, with intention and moral responsibility in the title. I mean, there are probably lots of others that don't even have the title. But, but uh, uh, you know, Amazon lists 50 books and philosophy a lot and, and psychology with the term moral responsibility in the title. Actually, I got the 50 and then I stopped counting. You know, I didn't get past the first 10 screens or so. And there are dozens of other books in intention. The Cornell Library at Cornell has shelves full of these books and thousands of papers and journals. But there are very, very few papers and books that actually provide formal definitions. Now, why do I care? Well, okay, so I care because I'm a mathematician and we're used to providing formal definitions, but I'm also a computer science. My primary appointment is the computer science department at Cornell. And as you no doubt know, we're building things like autonomous cars. Uh, these cars are going to have to make decisions that have a certain moral content to them. Think of them as ethical decisions. We're going to have to write code, algorithms, um, that, that, so to speak, tell them how to make these decisions. Uh, for that, we're going to need formal definitions. And, and what I read in these philosophy books, by and large, is not what I would call a formal definition, not something I can write an algorithm using. Okay? So, so I'm looking for formal definitions. And when I read papers in the philosophy literature, I'm actually used to reading papers in philosophy literature, because before this, I did what philosophers called epistemic logic, what I know that you know that I know that you know, kind of stuff that actually is relevant to computer science, believe it or not. Um, and and um, I would read these philosophy papers that had informal discussions, and they all presumed we had, you know, their job, they, they, they assumed we understood what the word knowledge meant, and their job was just to clarify our intuitions under the assumption everybody understood, and there was a right definition they were trying to elucidate. And that's the sense that I get here, but when I read these papers, the definition seems to change from paragraph to paragraph. Uh, now, I, I can't point to where it's changing, because there is no formal definition. But my sense is, when I read these papers, that the definition is changing, which makes it frustrating to me. So I said, why do we care? So we're building autonomous agents. That's really going on now in computer science that will need to make what I think can be viewed as moral judgments. Um, Germany recently proposed a code for driverless cars. The proposal specified, among other things, that a driverless car should always opt for property damage over personal injury. So if the car has a choice between harming a passenger or causing damage, it should cause the damage. That's what the code, the legal code of Germany, the proposed legal code of Germany is going to say, or I might say, well, you know, suppose the prob probability of $100,000 of property damage is 0.999, or the probability of a minor injury is 0.001. Don't ask me where these probabilities come from, but for now, let's accept these are somehow realistic numbers. Is that now reasonable? Should we still go for the property damage over the injury? Uh, by the way, how many people cross the street sometimes when it's a red light around the university? What is the probability of getting run over? It's not zero. We make decisions even though there's a possibility of, of, of risk and harm to humans. Insurance policy actually prices that, try to price that risk. Um, so for those of you who read science fiction as kids, as I certainly did, um, you'll know that Isaac Asimov wrote all these books on robotics, and, and uh, he proposed three laws of robotics that are still you know, 
getting a lot of currency now. Things like a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human to come to harm. And a robot must obey orders given to it by a human unless they come into conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as such protection as long as such protection doesn't conflict with the first or second. Well, as you can imagine that applying to an autonomous vehicle. Think of that as a robot. It's actually not very far removed. Um, now, the trouble with this is it's not very precise. It's not always clear how to apply these laws. Now, Asimov wrote lots of short stories using these three laws. They're actually a lot of fun to read. And the whole point of these stories were these laws were coming into conflict. And, and there was a situation where the robot had to sort of figure out, did it you know, go with the first law or you know, maybe violate it a little bit to get to the second law? So the point is that because the laws weren't precise, not precise in the sense of a formal mathematical definition, there was a lot of play to figure out exactly how to implement the laws in particular situations. You know, uh, for example, things like what if preventing harm to one person causes harm to another? Now, you know, the robot says you may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm, but now you have a choice of doing action A or B. Doing A will harm one person and doing with some probability, perhaps, and doing B will harm another. What do you do? Right? What if it's three people versus one person? Right? These are the things we have to confront. So we need to think in terms of trade-offs. We're building now, this is really happening, uh, assistance, what are called assistive agents, that are going to help in nursing homes. This is a big deal now, particularly in Japan, where they have a very rapidly aging population and not enough people to take care of them, not enough younger people to take care of them. So they're building robots. There's a lot of research in building robots that will work in nursing homes. And my guess is what we're talking about over the next 10 years, these robots will become more and more active in nursing homes. Well, should an assistive robot help an elderly patient commit suicide? Right? These are moral decisions, clearly. How do we decide? So that's the background. That's where I'm coming from. And by the way, later Asimov introduces zeroth law that said a robot may not harm humanity or by an action allow humanity to come to harm, taking a broader view. Uh, this has become a big deal recently in the philosophy of literature. Nick Bostrom wrote a book that talked about superintelligence and the concern that one day the robots will take over, the super AI will take over, which is actually not a totally unrealistic concern. And now we're talking not at the level of allowing an individual to come to harm, we really are talking at the level of humanity. So these are all issues that are going to arise, which I'm not going to say much about in this talk, but it's, think of that as the background of the talk. Okay, this is, how many people have not heard the trolley problem before? Are there any hands? Okay, well, let me review it. I know you've all heard it, but uh, so this is the kind of problem that's supposed to show the difficulties in coming up with a theory of moral responsibility. So suppose that a runway trolley is heading down the tracks, or five people got up in the track and cannot move. If the trolley continues to all five of them, you can't stop the trolley, but you can pull a lever, which will divert the trolley to a sidetrack. Unfortunately, there's a man on the sidetrack who will get killed if you pull the lever. So what's the appropriate thing to do here? What's your degree of moral responsibility for the outcome if you do or don't pull the lever, right? So um, would you feel differently uh, if rather than pulling the lever to get the train to go down the sidetrack and kill one person, you got to push a fat man over a bridge? That would stop the train and also kill one person. Now, if all you care about is the number of people who die, then the two stories are isomorphic, right? In both cases, you're killing one person or one person will die in order to save five people. But people do feel differently about these two problems. They feel there's an issue of intention coming in. You have to intentionally push the man. You sort of intended to push him over. So somehow issues of intention come in. And you can sort of think about how you feel about these things, but nevertheless. Um, very interestingly, last year in, in science, the, the journal Science, there was a modern version of the trolley problem. Um, should an autonomous vehicle swerve and kill its passenger when otherwise it would kill five pedestrians? Now, what was very interesting about this, you, you can all see this really is the trolley problem, right? What was very interesting about this is people thought it should. So they did, um, so these people actually did a poll, and most people thought the right thing to do was to swerve so, they, so that you killed the passenger and saved the five pedestrians. So they did what most people did in the trolley problem, uh, kill one to save five. On the other hand, um, when asked, would you buy an autonomous vehicle that had this as part of its program, 
most people said they preferred that the autonomous vehicle save the passengers. I mean, their autonomous vehicle <laughs> save the passengers, right? So clearly you feel a little bit differently if it's five versus one and the one isn't you, right? Um, so there's a general agreement that moral responsibility involves causality. You can't be morally responsible for an outcome if your action didn't cause it. Um, there is also agreement that involves some notion of blameworthiness. The extent to which you're responsible for the outcome, we're sort of talking to what extent are you to blame for the outcome. And that in turn involves what you could have done otherwise. If you had no choice in the matter, then you feel differently. Finally, people seem to care about intent. To what extent did the agent want A to have it, want the outcome to happen, or was O an unintended byproduct of A's real goal? So somehow there is this sense that you didn't, in, if, if you pull the lever, just kill one person and save five with the trolley problem, you didn't, in, yeah, there's a seat right here, uh, that you didn't um, intend to kill that one person. What does that mean exactly? Um, so I should say, as an aside, not everyone agrees that intent is relevant, although people, most people do seem to take it into account. Um, so there's lots of work in psychology where, where people sort of are asked, to what extent are you, you know, are people, is this an action permissible? And they seem to be getting at issues of intent. Um, all right, let me talk a little bit formally. Don't be frightened. I'll try to keep the math down to a minimum. Um, so I've done a lot of work on causality. Um, and so let me say a few words about causality, because that was, the, remember, the first point of moral responsibility was causality. So, um, big crowd. <laughs> uh, so, um, the literature considers two flavors of causality. Uh, type causality talks about smoking causes cancer. Statisticians are very concerned about that. Or with some probability, smoking causes cancer. Uh, what philosophers call token or actual causality says the fact that Willard smoked for 30 years is what caused him to get cancer. Now, I focus on token causality, this is the second flavor. So let me give you a sense of the difference. Um, so suppose I say, look, it's true I was drunk last night. And it's true it was pouring rain. But the reason I had the accident, the cause of the accident, is the faulty brakes. So I'm suing GM. I drive great when now, notice here the difference between type causality and token causality. As far as type causality goes, uh, bad weather causes accidents, is a cause of accidents. Uh, drunk driving is certainly a cause of accidents, and faulty brakes are certainly a cause of accidents. So as far as, token, as type causality goes, all three are causes of accidents. But I want to say in this particular case, which is why I care about actual causality, it wasn't the drunk driving, it wasn't the fact that I was drunk, it wasn't the pouring rain, it was the fault of brakes. Now, the law is very concerned about causality. Um, the law, I'm going to claim, has a lousy definition of causality. I'm going to try to make that precise. So the basic idea uh, in the formal definition that we get is that A is a cause of B. It involves what are called, called counterfactuals, things that are counter to fact. So if A hadn't happened, B wouldn't have happened. That seems like a mouthful, but I, I claim we should be used to that. When I'm saying that it was the faulty brakes that caused the accident, I'm saying if the brakes hadn't been faulty, if they hadn't been the case, then I wouldn't have had the accident. That's what I, I claim that's what I mean when I say it's the brakes that are the cause. If the brakes hadn't been faulty, I wouldn't have had the accident. And I'm also saying, for example, even if it hadn't rained, I still would have had the accident. The rain is not the cause of the accident, because even if it's been perfectly good weather, it was the brakes. Right? And I'm also saying my drunk driving isn't the cause of the accident. I, I, what am I saying? I'm saying even if I hadn't been drunk, even if I'd been stone cold sober, I would have had the accident anyway. Right? So that so I claim if you think about it, we, we are, are pretty comfortable thinking about counterfactuals. Um, and the law uses this step pretty much uses this notion of what's called but for causality in the law. This is the first order approximation how the law defines causality. A is a cause of B. If A hadn't happened, B wouldn't have happened. And it's, it's called but for causality in the law. Um, unfortunately, if that was all there was to say about causality, we, we, would, we could knock off you know, several hundred papers and, and, and lots and lots of books. Uh, life is more complicated. 
So here is a standard example. This one comes from philosophy literature. A lot of literature has even better examples because they're case law. And, and they're great stories, but let me tell you this example. Um, so Susie and Billy both pick up rocks and throw them at a ball. Susie's rock gets there first, shattering the ball. Both throws are perfectly accurate. Let's assume let's just that Susie threw a little bit harder or you know, a few milliseconds earlier, so that's why her rock got there first. But had Susie not thrown the bottle, we'd like to say that Susie's the cause of the bottle shattering. But but for causality doesn't work. Because had Susie not thrown, the bottle would have shattered anyway. Billy's rock would have hit the bottle. Right? So there, I mean, but there are lots of cases like this where but-for causality doesn't work. Um, I was invited to this workshop where I was the token computer scientist, but there were all these philosophers and lawyers, and we got to hear um, an audio tape of the, of the US Supreme Court discussing a case. And the case involved um, a heroin dealer who'd sold heroin to a guy who had congestive heart failure, he was going to die anyway. But because it was bad heroin, he died a little bit sooner. And the question is, was the heroin the cause of death? And and, uh, and you could hear his lawyer say, his lawyer says, well, even if he hadn't gotten the heroin, you know, he wanted one last high before he died anyway, right? Um, don't blame the dealer. Um, he would have died anyway. And and you hear in the background Justice Kagan muttering something about this isn't but for causality. Right, but the law doesn't seem to have a good alternative to but-for causality. So there's been, there's been lots of work on getting good models of causality and, and uh, a fairly influential recent idea, lots of citations on Google Scholar, is using structural equations to model the effective interventions. I'm not going to go into the details, but let me, I, I, I do want to give you a little bit of an idea because I need that for my later stuff. So bear with me, it's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, so the idea which is due to Judea Pearl is that the world is described by a bunch of variables, if you're a statistician, I would say random variables, that affect each other. And this effect is modeled by a bunch of equations, that's what are called structural equations, that's where the name comes from. And technically I want to split the variables into two parts, don't let the names throw you. There are the exogenous variables, the word exogenous is meant to indicate that they're taken as given, they're determined by factors outside the model. And then there's the endogenous variables, the rest, and they're determined by the exogenous variables and other endogenous variables. So we're going to have equations that describe the values of the endogenous variables, so the ones that aren't taken as given. Um, in terms of the exogenous variables and other variables, we'll have an equation that says x is y plus u, so the value of x. If y is 3 and u is 5, then x is 8. That's what this is saying. The equations can be arbitrarily complicated. Um, but the way to think about this, this isn't really an equality, it's more like an assignment statement in programming languages. So if you set if you somehow were to intervene and set y to 5 and intervene and set u to 3, x would have the value 8. But it doesn't mean if you intervene and set x to 8 that y would be 5 and u would be 3. This is really like an assignment statement that goes this way. The way to think about this is, um, right, so we, well, maybe I'll give you an example. Um, so two arsonists drop lit matches in different parts of a dry forest. Both cause trees to start burning. We can imagine two different scenarios. One says one match is enough to burn down the forest. The other one says you need both matches to get enough of a flame going to get the fire to go. So we can describe these scenarios using what we call a causal network, whose nodes are labeled by variables. Again, don't let this, you know, this is about as much math as you're going to see, but, but the picture I think will help. Think of the U as the exogenous variables, ML1 and ML2, is, this is, says the first arsonist drops a match, it either has value zero or one, either he drops a match or he doesn't. This is the second arsonist, either drops a match or he doesn't. The U up at the top there, and there are arrows going from U down to these variables, it's determining the values of these variables. What causes them to drop matches? Who knows? Maybe they had upbringing, you know, they liked playing with matches as kids. I mean. That's the exogenous stuff. That determines whether, but, then we have the forest burn sample. And whether the forest burn sample will depend on whether these guys drop matches. Now we have two scenarios. One says that the forest will burn if either one of them drops a match. So the equation there would say the forest burns, this, this, this has value either zero or one. It has value one, this is an or in logic. If either one of these is a one. So you don't have to know logic. All this, this equation is saying this is one if either of these two is this is, this is an and in logic, but again, this is just saying that the forest burns if both of these guys drop matches. 
So that's what I mean by we have a model with equations, and the equations will tell us how each variable depends on its predecessors in the graph, right? So that we have two different scenarios, one where it takes one match to light to get the forest burning down, the other one where it takes two. The difference between the scenarios is modeled by having different equations for this variable. And in you know, the one case, the equation says one match is enough. If either one of them drops a match, the forest burns. And the other one says you need both matches, right? That's so the general notion of a structural equations model is a generalization of that. That we have a bunch of variables, we think of a graph that describes them, we think of intuitively causality going from the top down. It's asymmetric. It's asymmetric. Uh, we actually have definitions that work even if you have we have cyclicity, but almost all the examples are acyclic. So think of it as being asymmetric. Acyclic just says there's no cycles. He's using a technical word. Uh, all right. Uh, so the arrows, I don't know how well they come out in the back, but there are actually arrows here. And the arrows, think of them as determining the flow of causality. Um, so I'm not going to give you the definition of causality. It, it's not so simple, but I have a whole talk on causality if anybody cares, which I'll probably give on campus at some point this semester. Um, I have a whole book on this stuff. Um, <laughs> like a little advertisement there. But so for now, let's assume... I really do. I, I have a formal definition of causality. And the formal definition will say what it means for A to be a cause of B. Okay? And I, I went through all of this stuff with the causal models because I'm going to use the causal models to also define other notions. Um, so what I hope became clear in some of the easy examples that I gave at the beginning, so first of all, I should say the definition of causality is relative to a model. To a causal model and a context, the context says, the context describes the values, whoops, of the exogenous variables, the ones, sorry, the ones at the top here. Right, so intuitively, once I know the model, the model will tell me what the equations, the model intuitively tells me how the world works. The values of the exogenous variables tells me what happens to be true about the world now. Right, did the guys actually drop matches or not? So, and the definition of causality is relative to a model. That means, this is for the lawyers, uh, even if you accepted my definition of causality, you're not done yet. Two different lawyers can argue about which one has the better model to describe the world. In one model, A might be a cause of B, in another model, it might not. So the definition of causality, the advantage of having a formal definition is at least if you're discussing something, you know what you're disagreeing about. But the definition of causality does not tell you whether A caused B. It'll just tell you whether A caused B relative to a model. And different people can disagree about what is the best model to describe the world. Does that make some sense? So um, the reason I say all this is, in general, an agent is uncertain. Now, he might be uncertain about both the way the world works. Does smoking really cause cancer? I mean, there was a time when, when people were arguing that, that there was a gene that, that caused you to want to smoke, and also caused you to get cancer. So there was this common cause. So people understood that there was a correlation between smoking and getting cancer. But you know, you've heard this all the time, correlation is not causation. The way that comes out in these causal models is, okay, there would be another variable, your genetic makeup. And your genetic makeup might be such that you really like smoking, something in your genes makes you want to smoke, and also that gene would make you more susceptible to cancer. So even though smoking and cancer are correlated, smoking is not a cause of cancer. Now, you can imagine a different causal model where smoking is a parent of cancer in the graph. Smoking does cause cancer. Now, a priori, you might not know which is the right causal model. You might be uncertain. I mean, at this point, we're quite certain about what the causal model is, but in principle, you might not know. So you, the agent might be uncertain about what the causal model is, the agent might also be uncertain about the context, but in this case, what the context is, well, did the guy actually smoke? I mean, even if we believe that smoking caused cancer, and we see this guy died of cancer, did he smoke? Maybe he had other reasons that he might have died. Um, so there are two sources of uncertainty, and we can imagine an agent has a probability on these pairs MU. So again, M is the causal model that describes how the world works. And U is what I call the context that describes what happens to be true. Did, you know, which, which agent dropped the match? 
were you in fact drunk? Right? It might be uncertain, even if you understand how the world works. Right? So, um, so because of this uncertainty, an agent doesn't know if performing an action will actually cause an outcome. So these models are actually deterministic. If you would like, all the probability is not in the model itself, but you're putting a probability on the models. It sort of pulled all the uncertainty out, for those of you who worry about these things. So it's not that there is no uncertainty at all, but we're assuming, so if you think about smoking and cancer. Well, of course, it's true that, that some people smoke like chimneys and never get cancer, and other people you know, hardly puff at all and, and, and get cancer. So you might think that the connection between smoking and cancer is, is, is probabilistic rather than deterministic. Well, the way we would model that is say, okay, smoking is one of many factors that cause cancer. We might not understand all the factors, but if you smoke and these other factors hold, then you're going to get cancer. And uh, other people, they smoke, those factors don't hold, they don't get cancer. So we would just model that. We would still have a deterministic model, but we would just stick more in the exogenous variables up at the top. So you smoke, and maybe there's something else you know, in your genetic makeup that makes you particularly susceptible to cancer. Whatever it is, we enrich the model enough so that everything in sight is deterministic. And when we have equations that have no probability in sight, and all the probability is, if I say, okay, smoking only, if you smoke, there's a probability of 0.6 you'll get cancer. Well, that 0.6 becomes the probability that you'll have whatever other factors in addition to smoking are going to give you cancer. So it sort of transferred all the probability in the model to uncertainty about these other factors. That just makes life a lot easier to move all the probability in one place when you're trying to define these things formally. Let me stop for a second. And, you know, how lost are people? I mean, are there questions I can answer? All more or less on the same page? Um, so let me talk, see, I needed all this stuff to talk about degree of blameworthiness. So an, an agent A can compute the effect on outcome O of switching from action A act to act prime. So look, you can switch from one action to another, and, and the switch made no difference at all as far as the outcome is concerned. Or you can switch, and, and, and when you switch, you don't get outcome O anymore. Or maybe with action act, you got you didn't get O, and once you switch, you then you get it, right? So, because the effect of actions is uncertain, right? At the beginning, you have a probability distribution over these causal models. So you perform an action, you say, look, I'm going to get this outcome of probability point seven, right? Suppose I did a different action. With what probability would I get that? Now, again, let me try to make this real. Think in terms of you're driving a car and you're trying to do a tricky maneuver to avoid an accident. Well, you're not necessarily 100% certain that, that this tricky maneuver will result in you not having the accident, right? So you can, you'll have a probability on um, how likely will I have the accident if I perform the maneuver? What if I do something else? And what's the probability of having the accident then? So what you're saying is, well, maybe no matter what I did, somebody would adopt, right? That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. So you're saying, look, I performed action act, and I'm thinking of switching to action act prime. What's the effect of that going to be on the outcome O that I'm interested in? Right? And the effect isn't going to be 0, 1 in general. I mean, maybe, but, but in general you'll say, well, if I perform act, I'll have a certain probability of getting this outcome. If I perform act prime, I'll have a different probability. And I want to look at the difference. I want to look at the net change in the likelihood of the outcome if I switch from act to act prime. Does that make sense? I mean, again, this is not deep math. What you have to think about is, look, if I perform act, I'll get the outcome with probability 0.7. If I switch to act prime, I'll only get it with probability 0.6. So I've, I've made an improvement, but the improvement is only 0.1, right? And so that's what this is saying. What's the difference in the likelihood of the outcome if I switch from act to act prime? Forget about the rest of this. That's yeah, the PR stands for probability. Sorry, I mean, I'm so used to, I'm in a world where everybody knows that. But I realize I've just switched to a world where not everybody knows that. Um, so technically, I'm going to define the degree of blameworthiness of your action act for outcome O as the largest net change. So again, don't let the math frighten you. Let me talk about the intuition. You performed a certain action, and you can say, look, 
to what extent could I have made a difference to this outcome? So I'm thinking about all the other actions I could have performed and say, well, what would have been the best case? How much of a difference could I have made in the best case if I switched from the action I did do, act, or the action I'm contemplating doing, to some other action, act prime? Does that make sense? That's all that the math is saying. It's saying it's the maximum possible difference I could have made to the outcome O by switching from the action I'm contemplating to a different, by switching from that to a different action. The degree of blameworthiness depends on the probability, but um, to what extent is one of the arsonists to blame for the forest fire? Well, I mean, let's, so let's just talk about it. depends on how likely uh, you might be uncertain about whether it takes one match or two matches or maybe more than two matches to start the fire. So you're going to have a probability on models, right? And you might also be, suppose you think it only takes one match to start the fire. Now your degree of blameworthiness depends on part. How likely do you think it is that the other guy is going to drop the match? If I'm certain Marcus over here is going to drop that match because he loves playing with fires, then my degree of blame goes down to zero. Right? Let me stop and say that slowly. Right? If I'm if it only takes if I'm certain that it only takes one match to start the fire, just about certain, and I'm just about certain that Marcus just loves playing with matches and is going to drop that match then my action isn't going to make a damn bit of difference, right? It doesn't matter if I drop the match or not. He's going to drop his match and only takes one to start the fire. Now, you might think about this as coming up. What happens if he thinks the same about me? <laughs> Overcome, right? Um, well, I guess we're here, but, but duh. Um, that's what the definition is saying. You, know, you might not like it, but we'll, we'll come back to this point. This is actually an important point. So, actually, let me talk about this now. So this is an issue, I, I, this talk, I guess I don't come back to, so I should talk about it. This is actually a big deal that, that uh, we get, I mean, so have you all heard of the tragedy of the commons, the standard puzzle in economics, right? So uh, this, uh, let me give you a, one version that, that uh, there's a bunch of fishermen and they're told that if they all overfish, then there's not going to be any fish left, and, and you know they're all going to be hungry next year because because the fish population will die out. The right thing for them to do is to you know just catch a you know relatively small amount of fish enough to feed their family, maybe settle a little bit. Um, and if they all do that, the fish stock will perpetuate, and they'll have fish next year, and the year after, and the year after. Now each fisherman looks at all his other fishermen and says. No way, these guys are all going to overfish. And at which point it doesn't matter what I do. Right? Um, and if they all think that, they have all very low degree of blameworthiness. So now, there is an issue that, that um, I think this definition is focused, if you like, on an individual's degree of blameworthiness. It seems to me also important, and we actually do this, I think, in practice, think of sort of a group notion of blameworthiness. What that's saying is, you know, there ain't nobody here but us chickens, right? There's nobody here but us fishermen. So viewed as a, viewed as a group, so if you think of the, single, the set of all fishermen as a single agent, super agent in some sense, that super agent has degree of blame one. Because clearly if they'd all not fished or fished you know, not too much, the fish wouldn't have died out. Likewise, if you think about the arsonists as a group, the two arsonists between them have degree of blame one. And it becomes a really interesting question, which this definition isn't dealing with, but I have other definitions that I think will deal with it. If I think we think both about the degree of blameworthiness of individuals and about the degree of blameworthiness of groups. If you think about sort of ad campaigns that sort of encourage people to think about the environment, you know, every little bit helps, right? Every little bit helps. Um, that, again, they're trying to encourage us to think as members of a group, even though that you as an individual can't make much difference, we as a group can make a big difference. And then it becomes a question, how do, you, how do you partition, if you like, or how do you distribute the blameworthiness of a group among the individuals who make up the group? Right, so I think that's different from assigning degree of blame to individuals. And I think we tend to think in terms of individuals if we somehow think, you know, it's nature. There's nothing we can do about it. But if we think that as a group we can, we can think differently, that, that, that we tend to think of ascribing 
if we blame the group and somehow apportioning it among the individuals. So again, I think this framework will help, but my point is that these are different notions. There's the degree of blame you assign to an individual, where that individual is just thinking on its own and thinking of everybody else's fix. They are the way they are. There's nothing I can do about it. These guys are all going to overfish. Marcus is definitely going to drop the match. From that perspective, I have degree of blame close to zero because there's nothing I could have done to affect the other. But if I think of it as the group, then yes, between us, Marcus and I could certainly have affected the outcome. And then it seems reasonable to somehow apportion the blame that we as a group get among the individuals in the group. So let's take a, a, an even more realistic example. Suppose a, drug, a doctor's use of a drug to treat a patient is to cause the patient's death. That's in fact the case. But the doctor had no idea there would be adverse side effects. So according to his probability distribution, uh, his degree of blameworthiness is extremely low. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing I could have done that would have made a difference, because as far as my beliefs go, this drug has no impact. Now, what do we do in practice? Well, you certainly would have felt differently if there were articles in leading medical journals that said, hey, this drug can have adverse side effects. You probably would have felt even more strongly if there was a little insert inside the drug, right, you know, that, that said contraindications, um, if you have you know, high blood pressure, don't take this drug. Then we would have felt that the doctor um, uh, committed malpractice, right? And so it's quite clear that, that um, so the definition is relative to a probability distribution. It, the definition itself doesn't tell you which probability distribution to use. Now the law, I mean, some, I, I'm not a lawyer, so the lawyers here can certainly correct me. My understanding, in, in, at least in the US, is that it's a difference between criminal case or a civil case that uh, in the criminal, so the doctor didn't intend to kill the patient, so as far as criminality goes, he's not, um, he's not criminally liable for the death, but he might be civilly liable for the death because he should have known. So the difference, again, don't quote me on this, but it's clear that people care about the difference between his actual probability distribution, that matters, because did he intend to do it? And the distribution, so to speak, he should have had had he been a responsible doctor and read the literature, or, you know, pulled out the insert and read it. Um, and again, so the definition is silence about which definition, to, which probability to use. Um, uh, you know, it's a mathematical definition that doesn't tell you which one you ought to use. Uh, the definition, you get to plug in the, the, the distribution, so to speak. The def, you know, it's, it's sort of a modular definition. It's relative to a probability distribution. And now we can discuss what's the right definite probability to use. So again, my understanding is in the U.S. they would use both. That that for some you know for uh, for some kinds of criminality that they, they would use his actual distribution because that certainly matters to whether he intended to do it. And for a civil, but again, I, I could be wrong, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but certainly, people do care about what he actually believed, and they also care about what he should have believed had he been a responsible doctor. Again, it would be very different if there was some article in an obscure medical journal that we wouldn't have expected him to read. Uh, that said, you know, there might be contraindications here, then he's entitled to believe what he believes. That doesn't seem so bad, right? So, so again, this definition is relative to a distribution, and, and it, it allows you to sort of think about, and it encourages you, encourages you, if you like, to think about what's the appropriate distribution to plug in. So, um, so that, that's this one. The modeler needs to decide what's the appropriate distribution. Clearly, people can disagree about this. Uh, so the other point is that, that the definition of blameworthiness is relative to an outcome. That depending on how you pull the lever, the, the, the agent has the degree of blameworthiness of one for either the death of five people or the death of one person. You might say he's, it's permissible, so to speak, to pull the lever and only kill one. Uh, this definition says, nevertheless, he's, he's completely, and, and, and I think it's the right thing, he is completely to blame for that one death, even though we might understand why he did it. So the definition is relative to an outcome. It's your degree of blameworthiness for a particular outcome O. And, and um, <coughs> now, you know, what should we do? Well, we certainly evaluate trade-offs using, I mean, one way to do it is, is using what, what, what decision theorists call utility function, where you sort of assign a number to how much you value each outcome. So there I assume that, that there is a utility function where we evaluate the goodness of, of outcomes, and that's the standard approach in decision theory. Um, so 
roughly speaking, I want to say, given a utility function, we take the action that maximizes the H's expected point. Now, I, I don't think this is quite right. That makes me a complete utilitarian. Um, that, you know, I'm sort of, I don't think it's a crazy position, but it, it basically says I look at X and, and, I, and I sort of look at each one and say, which one maximizes expected utility? That's the one I do, and that's my justification for, you know, killing the one person, not the five, and, and there I think that's right. I, I would pull the lever, one person would die, five would be saved, and I am taking a somewhat utilitarian position, saying the utility of five people living is higher than the utility of, or the utility of saving five people is higher than the utility of saving the one person. Intention is the hardest notion to define, or at least one that I found hardest to define formally. Um, I last gave this talk, I think it was in, in early May, and since then, our definition of intention, which you're not going to see here in full glory, uh, has changed about four times. This is very much a moving target. Uh, this the same thing happened with causality. Uh, that that um, uh, Pearl and I gave a definition of causality originally in, in a 2001 paper. We changed it uh, in response to a counterexample that somebody found. I mean, how do you argue you have the right definition? Well, I'd say I'm a mathematician. I'd love to prove a theorem that says, here it is. I got the right definition. And if I only knew what that theorem should say, I think I could prove it. But I have no idea what the theorem should even say. So what happened historically is we had a definition in 2001 that appeared in the conference. The journal version of the paper, which came out in 2005, had a different definition because uh, a student of Pearl's found an example that showed our definition wasn't doing the right thing. We agreed that was bad. We changed the definition. And then I had another paper in 2015 that had you know, definition mark three. And I'm not telling you about the 15 definitions that we didn't publish because we found problems in them before we published. And the same thing is happening here. I mean, so, so um, um, my co-author, Max Kleiman-Wiener, and I have had N for a fairly large N definitions of intention. And, and what, you're, you know, what I'm going to talk about now is the nth one because we killed the first N minus one because we found problems with them. Uh, am I sure we're not going to find problems with this one? No, I'm not sure. Uh, as I wish I could prove a theorem that would say, uh huh, this is the right one, I'm done. Um, if I only knew what that theorem said, I'd be very happy. If anybody has ideas, I'm happy to talk about it. But the intuition, so all I'm going to talk about here is the intuition and, 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 and claim, and, and I do have a paper that talks about this, uh, that it can be formalized in the framework that I've got. So the other thing I want to push is this whole framework of structures and equations lets us do these kinds of things. So roughly speaking, I want to say the agent A who performed the action act intended outcome O if had A been unable to impact O, he wouldn't have performed that. So basically, this is roughly speaking, the definition is a bit more. Uh, so, um, in the trolley problem, the death of the person that sidetracked was not intended. You would have pulled the lever whether or not the guy died. Right? That, that um, That's not, intuitively, that's not why you did the action. You intended that outcome of very roughly speaking, I want to capture the intuition. You intended it if that's why you performed the action. Right? Getting that right turns out to be hard, um, or I found it hard. Um, but these causal models, the agent's utility function, I need utility here to make this precise. Because to talk about intentions, you know, when you would, what does it mean you wouldn't have done it? The way we formalize you wouldn't have done it is your utility would have been higher had you not done it. So that's where the utility comes in. So intention, although I didn't use the utility function to define blameworthiness, that just used the probability as a formal matter, this definition does use utility. Because when I say you wouldn't have done it, it's you would have preferred not doing it had this happened anyway. Right? That's the idea. Let me not go, because we're already past five minutes. We need to deal with situations where an agent intends multiple outcomes. So here's some of the subtleties. Um, an agent intends, an assassin plants a bomb intending to kill two people. Now I want to say he intended to kill each of those people, but he would have planted it anyway had only one of them done. So if I apply this intuition naively that you wouldn't, you know, you intended to say that you intended outcome O, if O would have happened anyway, you wouldn't have done the action. That doesn't work here. Suppose I intend to kill both Marcus and Al, sorry. Uh, that that, that uh, if Alan dies anyway, I'm still going to plant the bomb oh. because because I'm still out to get you. Right? So th this naive definition doesn't quite work. We have to be a bit more careful. There has been, especially recently, a fair amount of work on, on um, 
when people view an act as morally acceptable. And this is where we do bring in the utility as, as well as, as the probability. Roughly speaking, and, and I really do want to say roughly speaking, an action is morally acceptable if it maximizes the agent's expected utility and the agent had reasonable probability and utility functions. Think of that as a first cut. Um, so what does reasonable mean? Uh, reasonable means something like the doctor can't believe that, shouldn't believe that, 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 that this drug has no adverse side effects if it, there's a journal article that says it does. Uh, reasonable utility function is not okay to want to kill your uncle despite the fact that you'll inherit you know, millions if, if your uncle dies. It's just not socially acceptable to go around killing uncles. Um, um, but that notion of reasonable, uh, speaking as a computer scientist, can take into account computational limitations and emotional state. What I mean by computational limitations, we accept the fact if there are many, many things you can do, um, you might not notice the best thing to do because it's just hard to figure out what the best thing is to do, right? So that, that we accept that, that um, um, you're not, you know, it says here it maximizes the agent's expected utility. Well, to maximize expected utility, it might be hard to figure out which action, even if you're willing to accept probabilities and utilities, it might be hard to figure out which, which action maximizes your expected utility. Because there's lots of actions out there. This clearly isn't enough to capture people's views because for one thing, people take intention into account. Uh, there are computational limitations so that, that, you know, being able to figure out the best thing to do, we say it's okay that you didn't figure out the best thing to do because it's hard to figure it out. We take into account emotional state that you're, you know, my mother just passed away. I'm really upset, so I do something that maybe isn't the best thing to do, but people sort of can understand why. So this is really not what people do. It's a first cut at what people do. And the question is, uh, you know, how do we capture all these things in the formal definition? Well, I, I think the framework lets us do it. Let me just conclude with a few points for computer scientists and I'll throw the floor open to questions. Um, so as a computer scientist, I want to build systems that, that actually implement some of these ideas. So one thing I'm going to ask is, can you compute the stuff efficiently? And the answer is yes. Um, that it's actually not unreasonable to expect systems to do these calculations. Um, the properties can be determined from data. So that part, I think, is the, the less controversial part for the kinds of applications I have in mind. When you say, where are the properties coming from? Well, Typically, they're going to come from data, right? Um, it, it's an active research area now, maybe not active enough. How do we, you know, what's an acceptable utility function, right? Um, there are people, Stuart Russell of Berkeley is probably the leader in this area, working what's called the value alignment problem. Um, just, you know, so the idea is that, that you're going to try to learn reasonable utilities from data. I don't defend this, I'm just trying to explain what people are doing. So the idea is that, that um, uh, and sort of with this robot is, is just watching people, watching what they do, and try, and assuming these people are trying to maximize expected utility, it understands the probabilities, can it infer the utilities that they must have had in order for them to be doing what they're doing, right? So this becomes a machine learning problem of trying to understand people's utilities by watching what they do. This is called um, uh, inverse. Uh, uh, so, um, of course, watching what people do might not reveal real moral behavior. I mean, there's this wonderful story about which company was it? Microsoft, I think, that released some learning system that was supposed to talk to people and learn to swear really well because that's what people were doing. Uh, yeah, oh, well, it's not clear that, that, that people weren't trying to feed it bad data, but yeah. Um, That's a perfect example. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I'm not defending this. I'm pointing, look, we are building autonomous systems whether you like it or not. We are building robots that will work in nursing homes. We need, they are going, building autonomous cars is happening. And we can say, oh, we like these are hard problems. What are we going to do about it? And completely agree, so, so think of this as a, a first cut of trying to you know, find a framework where we can have a sensible discussion about it. Again, you can disagree with my definitions. Um, I think the framework is actually of, 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 um, of structural equations is actually a powerful framework for modeling all these issues, but again, you might come up with a better framework. 
But we need to have this discussion, and we need to have it now because these things are happening whether we like it or not, right? So um, these definitions that I've given don't solve the problem, but at least I, I think it's useful to have formal frameworks just because it helps make for a better conversation. We can at least agree what we're disagreeing about. You might not you can say, that's a bad utility function differential. Um, but let's discuss, you know, so what should you, at least a framework that, that sort of lets you plug in a utility function or a set or something that's a preference order, um, and a framework that lets you plug in probabilities that doesn't tell you what they ought to be, um, at least then we can sort of disagree, maybe that's the right place to have the discussion. What's an appropriate utility function or acceptable utility function? You might say, well, the framework isn't building in enough about notions like duty, and it should take into account duty. We should take into account norms in some appropriate sense. And that's okay. So again, I'm not saying that this is the right definition that's done everything. I am saying that, that, that we need to have these formal definitions in order to have a sensible discussion. And moreover, we need these kinds of definitions in order to build systems. These are computer systems. They run on algorithms. Um, if we can't agree on a formal framework, then we're going to have trouble building these systems in a way that we think is sensible, right? So um, that last words here, I presume that H's have a probability and setting, and, and, and uh, it's not clear that, that probability is always the best way to model uncertainty. And it's certainly clear that people don't model uncertainty using precise probability measures. I have a whole other book on that kind of stuff. Um, so as a technical matter, I think it's useful to think about how to modify the definitions I've given to, to deal with other notions of uncertainty. That's sort of my research path. And likewise about utility, I haven't said anything about what counts as a reasonable or acceptable utility function. I doubt we can get universal agreement on it. But we should try to reach some consensus. We're going to have to reach some kind of consensus because we are building these autonomous cars, right? We can't afford to say, well, leave it to meta-ethicists and they'll you know, spend the next century discussing it and maybe they'll reach some kind of conclusion. It's too late. We're doing it now, right? And, and I don't want to leave it to meta-ethicists. I, I, I want to say this is a task we all need to be involved in. Um, you know, these are cars that, that you might be driving or might be driving you, might be driving your kids, you know, your parents, right? Um, uh, this is not... So this is something I expect to happen in the fairly near future. Maybe I'm wrong, you know, crystal ball is somewhat cloudy, but uh, having cars that drive themselves, having assistive agents in, in nursing homes, this is not a pipe dream, you know, 100 years down the road. This is something that's going to happen. You won't notice it happening because it'll sort of, you know, creep up on you slowly. Your cars will be doing more and more on their own until at one point they're driving themselves, right? Um, and you'll see more and more automation in nursing homes until at one point they're basically you know, running with like one person, right? Um, the way we've got factories now, I mean, we have these factory floors that, that have robots running around and one person that's supervising, right? All the jobs have gone on the factories. So, I, you know, this is not the distant future. This is, this is now. Anyway, let me stop there and, and uh, see.